on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again. I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to part two of our special interview with Austin Wintory, conducted in March 2021, part of a continuing series of film, TV and video game composed interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. In part one, we talked extensively about Austin's work on video games and how he chooses his assignments. In part two, amongst other things, we talk more about his film projects, his musical influences and his use of Bandcamp, as well as playing some more of his wonderful music. But I continued the interview by asking Austin about the difference in scoring films compared to video games. Uh, I mean, uh, films are, I mean, the, the technology is, of course, a gigantic component of what makes them different. Technology is a massive, massive part. I spend half my time in a game score figuring out how to use the technology not in a i'm confused this is you know i'm trying to learn how to use it it's more like how can i leverage the technology to make a great interactive score what kind of game is what sort of gameplay is this you know we in the game world we have a term of called game mechanics which is basically a way of saying what does the player do if it's mario you run you jump you duck you can punch little turtle shells. Those are the game mechanics. Journey is a game principally about walking and gliding and interacting with another person through those mechanics. So that's the kind of discussion that says music must be aware of those things. I, I have no interest in just writing a piece and throwing it over to the game developers and go, find a way to use it. It's all yours. Uh, to me, it must be tightly part of the experience. You know, I remember... Someone who was telling me, uh, someone who was involved in the recording sessions for Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull told me that they said, you know, you can really see that John Williams, he really embraces that he is part of the filmmaking process. And they said there's this moment where they were recording where, you know, it's some some action scene and Indy goes and punches the guy. And John Williams has in the middle of all of his, you know, Indiana Jones action music. And he stops conducting the orchestra and he turns to Spielberg in the session. And he says, Stephen, right now, Indy goes punch and it goes, but he goes, would it be better if it was, and the, uh, the wind up, it's like the throwing of the punch is the theme and they end together. Or does the punch connecting motivate the theme to come bursting out of the score. Those are two subtle distinctions. That's the essence of film scoring, right? You're saying, you're looking down to the individual frame and saying, how do we dance with this footage? And we're doing the same thing in video games. It's just to, to achieve that in games is a vastly more complicated technological 
process because the film is the film, especially once you achieve that mythical state that rarely exists anymore of picture lock, then you know, okay, at 12, you know, one hour, 12 minutes and seven seconds and nine frames, that's where the punch happens. So it's just a matter of discussing aesthetically. Do we want to preempt the punch or do we want to come in right on the punch? You know, those are two interesting choices and we may have our reasons one way or the other, but we don't have to sit there and like discuss with a programmer for five hours how to make the music aware that a punch has happened. But that's what you'd have to do in video games. So the tech makes a massive difference. But other than that, you know, writing music is writing music. It doesn't really matter. It, there, there's no. And, and at the end of the day, filmmakers, they're trying to make good films and game makers are trying to make good games. And, and so there are cultural differences in film directors and game directors. Like if I just talked to a stranger and didn't know which one they were, I could probably I could probably guess pretty quick which one is which, because there's just certain subtleties about the way filmmakers are that tends to be different from the way game directors are. But that's changing, too, because, you know, a lot more filmmakers are pretty game savvy now. You know, like Craig Mazin, for example, the writer showrunner of Chernobyl, the big HBO show that crushed it in all the awards, not least of which for Hildur Gundadotter's uh, score. He's a big gamer and he understands games. You know, people like that are becoming increasingly common, but it's still they're still rare nonetheless. Now, your first two film scores had success at the Sundance Film Festival, Captain Abdul Reed and the horror film Grace, both composed in 2012. Could you tell us more about your work on the film Grace, which has a very organic sounding score? <laughs> of course, absolutely. And in fact, Grace was directed by Paul Solit. Like he's the director with whom I've worked the most and I have the closest working relationship. We've done, I think, six features together now and a bunch of other things. We did an audio drama and all kinds of things. Very dear friend and truly extraordinary director. And Grace began by him saying, the only rule is there are no rules. He, he, he was all too aware that horror is full of cliches. Richard Kraft once said that uh, most horror scores sound like someone left a vacuum cleaner running. And uh, I'm inclined to agree. There's the, there's the kind of Herman-esque approach to horror, or there's the synth drones and textures and things like that with jump scares from loud bangs and things. You know, what was interesting about Grace is to me, it never felt like a horror film. It was a drama. It, it's a visceral drama that has some pretty intense imagery and some disturbing ideas. But fundamentally, it's a movie about a mother's love for her daughter. And Paul said, I really want to make sure that it always feels like it's about that. So he, yeah, he was all for, let's just try to find every way. Plus, we had no money at all. I was way over budget. I completely expended the entirety of my savings into that score. And that was my first time ever recording at Abbey Road. We did one session of three hours long for eight contrabass clarinets. Half the budget was on that one session. And the other half of the budget was esoteric little sound experiments I was making and hiring a few key musicians. Tina Guo plays on that score and Nathan Lanier played violin for me as like a favor. I, I traded, I orchestrated some, some scores of his in trade. And yeah, it was like, what can we do to make this sound interesting? And so it was, it was almost entirely derived from recording the sounds of flies, literal flies crawling across the microphone. Uh, a friend of mine had had a baby 
about a month before and I gave him a, a little Zoom portable digital recorder and I said, can you record your baby every time she's crying or, or laughing or whatever? And he gave me back like hours worth of material of baby sounds and I proceeded to manipulate them and, and I had all kinds of psychological and sort of neurobiological reasons behind these ideas. But fundamentally, I was also just hunting for something that would feel interesting and hopefully like you hadn't quite heard before. And I was so lucky that Paul, the director, was just like, do it, do it. If I've never heard it before, you win. Yes, the starter score is very unusual with a sound of what looks like a heartbeat. Which is a real heartbeat. Uh, that, that was the, there was no electronics. That was one of my rules for myself. I said, I'm not going to use a synth to create an illusion. Everything will be real. Real meaning everything is manipulated audio recordings. So I, I got one of those um, ultrasound recordings, like when a mother goes in for a sonogram and you have the, the thing going... And just slowed it down and pitched it way down until it became this almost like the T-Rex footsteps in Jurassic Park. But it is actually a baby's heartbeat, funny enough.
Now, another of your acclaim scores is your work on the Wonderful in 2016. What are your memories of working on that score? So that's the same director as Captain Aburad, and he is a lover of film music. He's Jordanian-American, so I call him the Middle Eastern Steven Spielberg because he just he loves film scores that do the talking in for the actors you know you know he's like if i can do it with music and visuals i will he loves writing great witty fun dialogue and things like that the spirit of things like indiana jones and whatnot he also just loves cinematic moments as much as possible yeah that was one of those scores where he said let's let's really go for it and in that movie you know he and i were brothers and that film was a really difficult chapter in our life. His wife was very ill with cancer. And so that film was in the midst of all of that. And it, it was very interwoven with, it was kind of an attempt at the scoring process specifically was an attempt at being a kind of uh, source of healing for us. No project can ever fully be that. But in my mind, when I think of that score, funny enough, I, I don't actually really think of the movie. I just think of our, it was just a, vessel into which we were pouring our emotions basically that one was particularly wonderful because i grew up in denver colorado and i had this wonderful relationship doing concerts with the colorado symphony and they said would you ever be interested in recording a score here and i said that could be fun and so on the rendezvous i i said what about this one big traditional old-fashioned orchestra where i'm writing for the orchestra in that symphonic way that romantic 19th century, of course, there's a lot of jazz infused into it. And there's a few novel, you know, we had some, some weird out of tune saxophone and fun, fun things like that. But by and large, it's a pretty traditional orchestral score. So um, I said, you know, that's a perfect score to record in a concert hall in a very lush, full way, because I'm not producing it the way I produce most of my scores, where I really need to get in there and it makes sense to record things in highly non-acoustical ways because you really are crafting a sound that's very particular and so it, it was yeah it was a joy absolute wonderful we basically took over the betcher concert hall for about a week as i would fly my whole crew from la you know steve kempster the engineer i mentioned and kevin globerman on pro tools and and my orchestrator Susie was in the booth the director came my agent came and and uh, my family was able to come just because we had this whole concert hall so you'd see like a few little friends in these seats as if we were putting on a show it was really fun and and what was funny is that my birthday fell in the middle of those sessions and so i came up to give the downbeat one time and the orchestra didn't play the cue and then they all just started playing happy birthday without they had, they had coordinated it in secret and it was actually very touching and unexpected and uh, so yeah that was one of those it was a very emotional experience that score in many ways very painful but in many ways very enjoyable the other thing i have to say that was a real privilege was I wanted to write a lot of kind of smoky piano solos for that score and, or at least a handful. And Mike Lang uh, played them. We tracked those separately here in LA, but he's, you know, the legend who had played with, you know, Branford Marsalis on the Russia house. And he played on just innumerable, still does, still plays on so many scores. And it was just such a legend. Did so many movies with Jerry and he and I came so close and I said, I really, really want to write a score that features you in a prominent piano solo way here and there. And so that he very graciously accepted the, uh, the offer on that score for that.
Now, you said you recorded Grace at Abbey Road and you have recorded a number of your scores in the UK. What do you find is the difference between musicians in the UK compared to the musicians who work with you in the United States? Uh, I mean, at the highest level, the differences are subtle and subjective. You know, there is something truly extraordinary about the top flight brass players in London that's been true for half a century. You know, you listen to the original Star Wars recordings and even scores prior to that, and there was always something about the brass in London that are just on another level. But we've got some pretty killer brass players in Los Angeles and Nashville as well, so we're not hurting. I did a game called the Banner Saga 3 in London, which is basically all winds, brass, and percussion. There's no strings in the orchestra. We had a giant orchestra, but no strings, and a huge brass section as a result. And it was just one of the loudest, most aggressive things I've ever heard in my life. It was absolutely so cool. But I've had experiences like that in Nashville, and I've had experiences like that in L.A. I had a session at Warner Brothers, uh, the Warner Studio once, with 28 horns and trombones. And it was just like a wall of sound, if I've ever heard one. It was just absolutely fantastic experience. So very often these decisions are made based on production decisions that have nothing to do with me. Very often it's, we can't record, we're not a union signatory, we can't record in LA, but we can maybe record non-union in Nashville. You know, Nashville's biggest problem is that their largest studio is smaller than our smallest scoring stage in LA. So you just can't get a giant orchestra together if you need one in Nashville. Whereas, you know, in London or in LA, you're not limited particularly, you can go well up over 100 people. So that's sometimes a consideration. And then sometimes there's just specific musicians that I, I really want to work with. Like in the case of, of Assassin's Creed Syndicate, I really wanted to record that in Abbey Road Studio 2 because that is the perfect room for that score. It's a room that's big enough to feel spacious, but it's really intimate. I mean, that's it's not Studio 1, which is the big scoring stage at, at Abbey Road where they have done innumerable big films. I, I said, I, I want the Beatles room, you know, where they recorded. It's the small tracking room where bands do records. And that was the perfect size. And, and there's not really Capitol Records Studio A could maybe have done it. But of course, Abbey Road is also just Abbey Road. You know, it's just any opportunity to work there. I'll always take. It's just a magnificent place with incredible crews. And that place feels like Mecca. You know, it, every single person down to the the most entry-level assistant intern feels so grateful to be working there and to be part of the incredible history of that building and that facility. And so making music there, you really feel like you're borrowing something very precious and you feel really lucky to be able to borrow it for an hour, two hours, a day, a week, and then give it back to them. And I do feel that way about the LA recording studios as well, though, recording at Warner and Fox and Sony, standing in those rooms and thinking, Judy Garland sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow the first time it was ever sung, right where I'm standing, standing in the Fox scoring stage and saying, this room, Don Davis recorded The Matrix in this room, basically exactly 20 years prior to that, Jerry Goldsmith recorded Star Trek The Motion Picture in this room, or 10 years prior to that, he recorded Planet of the Apes in this room. You know, that to me, I'm a sucker for that. That to me, that somehow means something. To feel part of a lineage it feels like someone's you know it's like when in the old fashioned you know bride is getting married and has to have something borrowed there's something special about the idea that i'm more than just me 
I am also the product of those that have been generous towards me. And being able to record in this room is in a way, yes, it's a business. I'm basically just paying the room's rate. It feels much more like you're letting me borrow your temple and I'm going to treat it as such. And the uh, London and, and LA in particular how, can lay claim to that level of magic. But Nashville's not far behind them. I mean, the number of scores that have been recorded there. We did Abzu there, for example, you know, and I treasure that room. I, I treasure Oceanway in particular in Nashville because of my personal history. You know, every time I go back there, I feel so happy to be back here again. I love their crew. I love that facility. And I, I like the personal history. Plus, I love visiting Nashville. You know, you go out, get some barbecue, you listen to a band, then you go into the studio. It's just magnificent. But that's a personal thing. When I go to London and LA, I feel like I'm very small. And I'm stepping into something very big. And, and it applies to Abbey Road and Air in London equally. I mean, those are both historic rooms filled with historic history. Yes, one day I myself like to visit these rooms like Abbey Road or Air or in the United States, like Sony Scoring Stage or, uh, the, uh, or, or the Fox Scoring Stage. Not just that, but Fox is the only one. Sony is technically called the Barbara Streisand Scoring Stage, but everyone refers to it as MGM or Sony. And Warner Brothers is similarly, it's the Warner stage, but it's technically the Clint Eastwood stage. But at least Fox is the Alfred Newman stage. And I've always thought, okay, well, someone got it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know at James Horn, who stood a lot of us are calling it the Todd A.O. scoring stage, which had an amazing sound. I'm happy to say I was actually there at his last ever recording there. The very final time he ever recorded there was for the ending credits of the Spiderwick Chronicles. And I was sitting 20 feet behind him while he conducted the queue and watched that whole thing play out, which was, I got to go to two of his sessions. I also went to Avatar at Fox, which was its own fascinating spectacle. I had no personal relationship with him, but they invited me to the stage and they said, I wouldn't talk to him today because he's actually quite emotional because he's literally, they know the studio's going away. He knows this is the last time he'll ever record here. And Tadeo was shutting down and he was doing his typical James Horner thing where it was, okay, there's a nine minute credit queue and we're going to do this in one take and we're going to use no click. And he did it. I watched him do it for three hours. He did take after take. He worked very, very, very slowly. So, you know, they probably did three takes and three hours, but it was still one of those moments of saying, I feel so lucky to be in the room right now because this was one of my childhood heroes. And even though he, he was kind of an eccentric madman in so many respects, he really, really was brilliant. I find myself appreciating his music more and more because it it feels like this more and more he harkens back to this different time period where there was an innocence to this art form where i really admire the david finchers the wes andersons the christopher nolans that are pushing the edge of the art form into these really visceral and interesting places but the initial days of film were like this outgrowth of theater where it was about let's try to make something that feels like real life amplified into this spectacle where love soars like the greatest love of mythology and fear is terror from the great beyond and adventurism is the great heroes of Mount Olympus themselves. Everything is like you think of the old poster to El Cid with the giant stone block letters and Horner, whether it worked for the movie or not, that's where he seemed to be writing from. You know, I go back and I listen to my favorite score of his of all time is The Mask of Zorro. And I listen to that and I and I got a lot of scores of his that compete for that title because he wrote a lot of classics. 
But I listen to Mask of Zorro and I think, by God, is this adventure in that old Hollywood sense. This is a score that, despite being from the late 90s, has the heart of being from like the 50s. And I've, I've come to really, really appreciate that as I've started to get a little older and I've started to miss his presence. I feel the loss of him. I, it's weird. I, I'm more sad about his death today than I was when I heard he died, like in the, the moment, because I thought, well, everybody dies. He's had an amazing career. He made a mark. He will be forever remembered as one of the great composers. And in those moments, I, I have a hard time grieving because I thought he made his life matter. By God, he, he actually really delivered on the promise of life, even if it was cut woefully short, he made a lot out of his, his years. And so I have a hard time grieving, but then at some point, selfishly, I start to say, yeah, but I miss it. Even though I hadn't loved the score of his in the level that I loved, you know, Mask of Zorro and things like that, Avatar and those, even sitting in the room while they were recording it, I thought, okay, yeah, it's, it's kind of more of the same. And I love what he does, but there's nothing that I'm hearing that feels like I've never heard this before. But even now it's like, yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing that though if only because he was one of the few who could really do that he really understood how to write that way so you know i miss his presence but yeah anyway that was all a tangent off of talking about todd ao i was able to go to a few recording sessions there i never worked there though i always wanted to record something there and i almost had a chance i remember i was actually going to record a demo there just to do it it's going to it was going to cost me like all the money I had, but then uh, the dates shifted and they ended up needing it for funny enough. Do you know what the last ever score recorded at Tadeo was? It was Trevor Rabin's national treasure Two, the final ever Tadeo score that score shifting its dates used up the studio and kicked me out of my recording that I was hoping to do there. It's all well and good. The engineer, Steve Kempster who mixed and recorded that score is the guy I use to this day. So he's, he's a very dear friend and trusted part of my crew and so it, it doesn't bother me that he got to be the final engineer at the at the console there i i love that actually
Now, Austin, aside from Jerry Goldsmith, who are your musical influences? Uh, well, I, funny enough, I don't actually consider Jerry much of a musical influence. I consider him a philosophical influence. I, I, I like the way he thought, but I don't, I don't actually think my music sounds particularly like Jerry's, at least most of the time. I, I mean, it's not, uh, who knows? In my mind, I just write what seems right. I'm never conscientiously trying to emulate anybody. I don't feel like my music sounds terribly close to Jerry's, though, of course, he certainly is an influence. Um, I, I, I just loved... I love his experimentalism. I love that every score seemed to be this one-off musical universe that had no connection to any other piece of music ever. I mean, I just, I aspire to that. In that way, I try to very much be like Jerry Goldsmith. And he's not the only one who was like that. He's just the best at it. But of course, all the great melodists for me, I really love trying to write a great melody. I, I love, not every project do you want something that's very tuneful in the traditional sense of almost song-like sometimes you want things to be more subtle more motivic you know a little bit more stravinsky a little less prokofiev as it were so both of whom i would count as influences as well bartok uh i think is probably my, my number one of all concert composers uh, bartok to me is just truly in a category of his own leonard bernstein in fact you can see over my shoulder here i've got two paintings on the wall one is jerry one is bernstein yeah, to me, Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story is, you know, arguably the most amazing piece of American music ever made. I, I, to me, it's just extraordinary. And, and to that end, I love musical theater. I love Sondheim and Bernstein in particular. But melodists, a lot, that's kind of a common thread amongst a lot of those. Partly why I love Horner. I love Mancini. I love Franz Waxman could write the most amazing melodies. They're just so beautiful. I love George Delarue, one of the most phenomenal melodists of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Even if all of his scores are kind of superficially similar, like Mancini in that way, you know, there's a, there's a sound that is just instantly like, yep, there it is. He's doing it again. And yet, it's just the freshness of these melodies. They're so wonderful. I was listening to the Francois Truffaut score, Jules and Jim, just yesterday, and I was like, man, Delarue, what, a, what an under, underrated hero. Polidorus. He is, I don't know, I don't know that I... He's not the best melodist ever, but when he wrote, when he nailed it, he nailed it. Yeah, like Pharaoh to the oh, King. Yeah. My favorite, I think, well, I, I, I love the wonderful, the sort of sarcastic machismo of Starship Troopers. To me, that score, it's sort of like all the Polidorus, Conan, and Robocop. It's like they all found their way to their apex form there. It's kind of like when you listen to Hans Zimmer, you know, you start listening and around the Black Rain, you're like, ooh, he's kind of... He's kind of got this gesture, and then you go and you listen to Backdraft, and you're like, oh, that's, I've heard that. That's kind of the same thing. And then you listen to Drop Zone and Crimson Tide, and you're like, I'm hearing a, a very similar kind of component part, but it's, it's finding itself, or the, you know, the themes that he wrote for The Rock, and then, of course, Gladiator, and then finally Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like you hear this thing he's been working on for 20 years, reaches its most distilled form. And it's like that idea, this kind of rollicking, adventurous, fun sound has finally been kind of perfected in that score. Very specifically, the theme to Pirates of the Caribbean, which credits to Klaus, but notwithstanding, I'm fairly certain, is actually Hans. And I think, you know, when you hear that, especially very specifically, you know, the... 
that little gesture is in like 10 other scores of his. It's like he's getting it closer and closer and closer and closer. And then finally, the, the perfect state that that it's the same with, you know, Beethoven had this obsession with this ta -ta 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 rhythm and you hear him playing with it all these different ways. And then finally, bum, 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 bum. He gets it just right on that one. But it wasn't the first time he played with that rhythm and that gesture. Same exact thing. There's a lot of composers that some are very overt. You know, Horner would just lift whole sections of scores one to the next and see and, and pretend to be oblivious to it. And honestly, he may well have been. He was kind of a grown up child in so many ways. But uh, yeah, so to me, Polidorus, that's what Starship Troopers is. Anyway, those are some of the, the composers. John Barry, of course, another composer whose melodic sense just I just never grow tired of. And the list goes on and on. But on the flip side, you know, I also do really, really love these bold, experimental, like electronic musicians, you know, like um, Mike Patton or Gary Newman or Trent Reznor that really are, that have pushed the sound of music, the actual literal sound of it into these bold and amazing places. Um, I find myself deeply in awe. I'm always trying to figure out how... How can I be everybody's student? You know, I love the bold daring of someone like that, of a, of a Mike Patton, a Wendy Carlos, these people that just, that just threw caution to the wind. They were so bold. But then the wonderful, almost humility of a Gabriel Yared or a James Horner, where you think they just, they want to, all they care about is, is this a good tune? And I, it's like, I, I, I really aspire in a way to have both. And that's where Jerry really is the ultimate because he was fiercely experimental, but then, you know, you watch a movie like Rudy or Love Field and you think, God damn, if he couldn't just write a tune, you know, that opening sequence of the sum of all fears. Here he is in his twilight years and he finds a way to just gorgeously bathe us in music that's just overtly 19th century opera in its conception. And yet also the same composer would write Gremlins, you know. I want to do an analog synth rag. That's really the defining characteristic of a 20th century and a 21st century musician. They look and they realize the tool set has become so wide where electronics have gone, where recording technology has gone. Of course, the interactive component that things like video games offer. And they just say, I want to taste it all. I don't want to just sit in a room. Like I, I could, like the diametric opposite would be like Bob Dylan. I want to sing and I want to play guitar and I want to play the same three chords. It's like, that, my brain cannot compute that. Despite, I think B Bob Dylan is, if, if nothing else, a brilliant lyricist, sort of poet, and, and in a way, political activist in a, in a sense. But to me, I just think, oh, but weren't you ever curious to try this or pick up that? And I, I just can't, maybe I'm just thoroughly ADD and just can't sit still. I don't know. But I, to me, the, there's just so many wonderful, I feel like a child who has run into an all-you-can-eat buffet and it's just like can't handle all the options and it's just exploding and just running and just like Helen Keller just grabbing things off the plates. And to me, that's that's how Jerry seemingly really was. He just always was trying new tricks and, oh, I never did that before, I never did that before. And in many respects, Bernard Herrmann was like that, uh, even though he was he had a very consistent musical language. He was definitely experimenting with instrumentation in, in, in remarkable and bold ways. And so, yeah, I consider myself an experimenter at heart, but I do love if, if I, if it's, if it's late at night and I just, just have me and a piano, I'm going to sit and I'm going to play like somewhere in time, you know? So it, I, I, that's where 
my heart is kind of in a way in two places at once. When composing a score, do you write for yourself, or is the only goal is to write what the project demands of you? Well, my goal—it's—it's it's, by the goal is to try to exist at the intersection of those. The goal is to say, because I'm not precious about the idea that oh, it can only be done one way. I, to me, that's that's a baffling arrogance. This score must be this. I, I am sure of it. I am an expert. I am a professional. What an absolutely horrendous thing to tell a director. Because the director, they are searching for the best version of their film, game, TV show, etc. Say they are a writer-director. While they're writing the script, they'll put postcards up on the wall, post-it notes with the story beats, and they'll say, I wonder what would happen if this scene actually came earlier. What would that mean for the characters? That would mean this, then this, and that. We've got to get ready to start shooting. So it, it is what it is at this point. Time always tends to force us to make a decision. So, okay, now we're shooting. Well, now we're with the actors and we're saying, the actor says, you know, I know you want this to be a really scary scene and I could yell in her face. What if I whispered in her face? Would I seem more threatening then? And the director's going, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe, yes, maybe. Try it. Now, you know what? It needs to be energetic. It needs to be... Again, they're searching, and the actors are searching. The actors are going through the same process you just outlined. They're saying, I have a strong belief about what this character should be like. But the director is also looking at the screen and is seeing what the audience will see, which means that we have to wrestle. We have to find that point where we agree, where I'm giving them my best, but I also can trust them that they have the audience in mind and they see the edges of the frame. They're not just here with me talking to a person, but they're looking at how is this interacting with 
the lighting. And meanwhile, the cinematographer, that's its own conversation. And the production designer, everybody's having these independent little battles. As such, it makes you realize like every film ever getting finished is sort of a miracle because there are so many difficult creative decisions to make in every frame of footage you look. Should the prop be here or here? Well, you know, if it's here, he can reach for it. So it doesn't make sense that when the person comes bursting in, he doesn't just pick up the gun and shoot him because it's, it's right there. Okay, well, let's put it out of reach so that maybe it feels like he doesn't think fast enough to reach over again. Well, why would he set it down all the way over there if he's going to... like? So you're in a million, you're in an hour-long conversation about where to put the prop. Everything is this battle. So by the time we get to music in a film, in games, it's usually happening all in, all in tandem with each other. But in, in music, it's, it's never, oh, here it is. Here's your theme. Here's how it ought to be. Take it or leave it. If you're, you find a different composer, if it's wrong, it's like, how the hell do I know? Every single thing about this project has been a series of, of, of wrestling with difficult decisions for which there is no objective answer. You will never know if you were right or if this is the best version. It just simply is the version you chose and you hope it's good. And so similarly, the director says, I really think this should be a really, really textural score. I really think we need to be really, really subtle. Like the music is the air in the room. It's not the actor staring at the camera. I don't want big melodic statements. I don't want big, bold orchestration. And I might be looking at it and going, I'm, I feel like I'm looking at a different movie from you. I'm imagining a big old fashioned theme here. And so then we hash it out. And, and to me, it's always in the execution. I just say, well, let's try it. In fact, let's try it both ways. I'm going to write both with full conviction and then we'll just see. And most of the time I end up agreeing with the director because the director is not just looking at it through the lens of what the music should be. The director is looking at it through the lens of having already made a million decisions about editing, cinematography, casting, production design, writing, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They've built up a vocabulary of tens of thousands of small little moves. And now I'm joining in with that and making little decisions relative to that move. In the same way that when a writer says, you know, at a certain point, when you're writing for a character, if you do your job, you don't write lines anymore. The character just speaks. And if they speak falsely, if you write a line for them that rings hollow, you'll know it instinctively. This person would never say that because they've become a real person to you. That's what the score can be for a director. They just think that what this movie is and what it needs has become something pretty clear to me by this stage. And it it just wouldn't be that. What that score sounds like, it's just not the movie that all these other decisions have been gradually moving in the direction of. And so I think it's my obligation to make sure that I honor that and I take that into account. Now, I also can make the counter argument, yes, but you're also far from objective. I'm coming in as a fresh set of eyes and I can maybe show you your movie for what it actually is and while you're sort of desperately trying to make it something that maybe it's not. So we're all trying to inform our perspective. Who's really the most correct here? And it's ultimately, this is why it's so important that you get along and that you trust each other and you like each other because these are very intimate and very vulnerable conversations. So once you get in there, very often I'll try it multiple ways. So rarely do I say, I got to stick to my guns here. And then sometimes they'll say, well, I got to stick to mine. And the ship has a captain. And so it is my obligation to, to give them as professionally as I can what they're looking for and to be able to feel good about it and to not think, oh, well, this is a bunch of crap music. I say, no, no, I, I will make sure this is different music than I might have written in an alternate universe. 
But this is the best for the scene because I do, I'm willing to trust that you are directing the best possible version. And, you know, sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But I don't believe that it's a composer's job to say, I know what your movie needs, full stop. It's like, I want to have a conversation about what the movie needs and let's try to merge our brains into one super brain and let that tell us the answer. Now, going back to your music itself, you release a lot of your, your work on the Bandcamp site. What benefits do you see on releasing your music on Bandcamp? Oh, I, well, I, I love... One of the things that I think is so definitive about the 21st century is that you can DIY literally everything. There is basically no excuse. The, all the barriers to entry have all but melted away. I'm astonished that anybody would care about my music at all, particularly as a standalone experience, just because it's never made for that. It's always made to try to make a game better or make a film better, to help tell a story. And most often it's a story that I didn't even write. You know, it's someone's story that I'm helping to support. So there's no goal that it makes for a great album. I'm not writing the music going, oh man, this is going to be a good track five, like the way a, a band might or a concert composer might be saying, oh, the third symphony is going to be the part that everybody skips, a, their heart skips a beat. Or so. I'm not thinking in those terms. It's always, this is an amazing moment of this game. And I'm trying to make it that much more amazing by amplifying the excitement or the heartbrokenness or the whatever. And so to this day, I'm always astonished that soundtrack albums can have the size audience that they sometimes do. And so on top of that, I do love, despite the fact that social media is a, it's an interesting beast because it, it can bring a lot of horrible things into the world and it, it kind of bypasses a lot of our higher order thinking and it goes straight for our primal instincts. So you end up with people that are full of anger a lot of the times because the dispassionate nature of discourse that is a natural consequence of talking to someone directly to their face, it doesn't exist online. So I think a lot of our challenges in the world right now are centered around how do we reconcile our natural animal nature with these tools. But I overwhelmingly still feel very positively about these things because I get messages on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook from people that'll say, like just the other day, a guy said, I'm learning to write music and your scores are kind of like, help me learn. I feel like they're kind of an inspiration. Sending you greetings from Tehran, Iran, or I'm in South Africa, or I'm in New Zealand, or I'm in the Philippines, or I'm in... Nigeria, or I'm in France, or I'm in Mexico, or I'm in Chile. The people write from all over the world. And I love being able to write back and say, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to help. I'm thrilled to be of service. Or, or, they'll, or they'll write and ask me questions and say, like, I'm a composer. I'm studying and I can't for the life of me figure out what key this piece is in. What the hell are you doing here? I don't what I, like, like, you know, they're trying to just learn the techniques. And sometimes I'll write back and I'll say, you know, here's the attached sheet music. Enjoy. So to me, Bandcamp serves two functions. First off, there's a lot of audiophiles in the world that really like the fact that they can download full resolution, uncompressed audio, and they'll have a real high fidelity sound system or really nice headphones. And they realize if they download a 24-bit 48K WAV file or an FLAC file, they are getting the full signal exactly as it was delivered to the game or whatever unlike an mp3 or some kind of compressed you know spotify stream so for those that really care about it bandcamp is fantastic because you can choose your format 
So that's fantastic. But then also it's the social aspect. People know they're not buying a record labels release. They're buying it from me. And so people tend to be generous. They also will leave little notes and all and all right back. Bandcamp has a subscription service where you can just pay an annual fee and you get every new release automatically. And you also have access to private message boards and stuff. And I created a discord community where I said, anybody that wants to subscribe to my Bandcamp, we can hang out on discord all day. I've started getting really aggressive in creating YouTube content of behind the scenes and things like that. And so I'll show them videos that are works in progress and go, Hey, anybody having feedback? I'm going to release this video on Friday. And so it's like, it's a chance to just form a community. And then what's what I love is that people in the community, they start, you know, they find ways to help each other. You know, some, there will be a composer in the community that says, Hey, I'm a young composer and I just got my first gig and I really want to record guitar and I don't play guitar. I don't have any money. And anybody here happen to be a guitarist and someone says, Oh, you know, I, I can probably help you out or whatever. So I like to try to facilitate that sort of thing where it's all just happening kind of through ultimately through this Bandcamp thing, although theoretically you could set that up any way you want. It could even be a Facebook group or something, you know? So I really like those tools. You know, to me, the only area that's a big exception is that we've re released a lot of vinyl and I always work with record labels. Self-producing vinyls is a huge pain to make deals with the pressing plants and to do the test pressings and the artwork proofs and the shipping fulfillment, God help me. I've tried it and it is a pain. I, I thought I, I'm going to be one-stop shop. We do it all in-house. And then that was the one that I thought, nah, nah, I'm never, I'm never, I'm never doing that. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all too happy to have partners there. And I have worked with labels. I've worked with Verez. I've worked with Fort Thaxton and I've worked with Lakeshore and, and they're wonderful. You know, I, was, in fact, having a Verez album was one of my bucket lists. I was like, I own like something like 1200 Verez CDs. I'd like to have my own in there someday, just if only for my own gratification. And they put out Abzu on CD. Uh, so I'm grateful for those partnerships, but I do have, I love the DIY. I love being able to handle it. I like to study the data, you know, like if you self-distribute, you know, I can go on Spotify and I can really study the trends and I can see all oh, interesting. This album is picking up popularity. I wonder why that is. And, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm a nerd for the, the under the hood data of it as well. And, and self-distribution makes that way easier to get a hold of.
appear sometimes as a guest on Robert Daniel's show on uh, Nightshade 5 CKWR entitled Visions in Sound. And I know that you are still have a wonderful signature tune to the show. Could you tell me how that uh, lovely cello bass theme came about? You mean the, uh, the, the medley of the 10 scores? Oh, the theme, the theme. Well, we just started doing, he just had me as a guest on the show and then he had me a guest again and again. And then we started doing these specials. Like I remember there was this medley of, of, I can't remember which came first, the theme or the medley, but I, I feel like it was the theme, the medley where he said, you know, he polled a bunch of people, composers, filmmakers, I don't know, listeners. I, I can't remember who the list, but I think it was many people, the 10 scores that changed scoring forever. It was the premise. It was not your 10 favorite scores, the 10 most popular scores. It was the 10 scores that were so pervasively influential for one reason or another that they seem to just change what the art is. You know, scores like Psycho, The Seahawk, and Star Wars, American Beauty, Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Apes. They looked at the art form and they said, it would be like, here's a piece of paper and it's blank. This constitutes the canvas of the art. And they said, you've got it wrong. It actually can be this big. You know, they, they, they brought into the horizon of what the blank canvas can even be. That kind of score. They don't even have to be scores you like. They just reveal some new truth that we overlooked or didn't know existed. So he came up with this list of 10 and I made a medley of the 10 that was kind of fun and a little, you know, full of little kind of inside jokes. Like for example, it starts with psycho where I arranged it for winds, brass and percussion. It was like, let's do psycho for everybody, but strings full of little kind of nerdy things like that. And then at some point I think he just said, Hey, you know, I think he was just using some stock music or something because he said, um, I, I actually honestly can't remember. Maybe he had commissioned a theme and was wanting to retire it, but he just said, are you willing to write a theme? And, and I, so I grabbed my recurring, collaborator cellist Tina Guo and I said uh, can uh, I throw some music your way and I did the rest on my computer and just just said I'd love to do it you know I didn't I was amazed like sometime relatively recently I was listening and I realized he was still using it and I was like I can't believe he's still using this I think it's been more than 10 years now Thank you. 
And as you said there, the theme features cellist Tina Glow, who is much in demand in film, TV, and video game music these days. Boy, has she exploded. I'll never forget, we were recording Journey, and she was at my studio, and she left and uh, called me a few minutes later. And You know, usually when someone leaves and then immediately calls, it's because they, like, forgot their wallet or something. And she said, I just got a f- the phone, and I just wanted to ask you if this is, if this is legit. She only knew two things when I knew her. She knew classical music because she was a touring classical cellist playing like the Dvorak Concerto, the Sanson Concerto. And she knew metal because she loved full-blown heavy metal. You know, bands like Rammstein were her heroes. And so she knew nothing about the world of film scoring, television, video games, nothing. But we went to school together. So I was working for her. I was working with her, hiring her and, and collaborating on, on things. And just I just knew her as just this absolutely mind-bogglingly gifted cellist. But she never knew anything about the stuff we were working on. So then, yeah, one day she called me and, and said, I just got a call for an opportunity. And it seems like a lot of work. And so I wanted to ask if this is legit or something like that. She was vetting it. And I said, well, who was it? She was like, it's this... It's some guy named Hans. And I was like, oh, I said, that's it's probably legit. But I said, uh, I wonder, did he did he detect your skepticism? And she was like, well, I didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh, I love it. That's so funny. He's probably forgotten what it's like for people to not know who he is. And so it hopefully was a bit of a charming moment to discover somebody a bit clueless. And of course, that was for Sherlock Holmes. And after that, he basically doesn't do anything without her ever, including going on tour with her and everything. And, and of course, a handful of other musicians and many, many other musicians have discovered that her power as well. And, and fortunately for all of us, she is a tireless workhorse who, who will just take on as much as she can handle. She never says, well, I'm, I'm working on an album, so I'm not going to do any recording for this year or something. My heart would shatter into a million pieces if she told me that. Because, yeah, I've worked with her on, I, I can't even count the number of, I like that director, Paul, I mentioned, Grace. I realized one day that she has played on everything I've ever done with him. Um, and we, he and I have done a lot together. And, it's, and when I realized that, we were getting ready to start another movie. And so I realized, well, now I have to. Like, I'm going to look for a spot for cello solos just because I have to keep the pattern. You know, I, I won't break the pattern. So, yeah, I, long and short of it, I realized I, I've wandered off topic. I don't actually remember any big story other than just being very... Delighted and honored that Rob hit me up and said, would you be willing to write this theme? And I said, I would be thrilled. And I enjoy listening to it every time I appear on Bob's show. I know it means getting up around three o'clock in the morning for myself to do, but it's always a pleasure to contribute to his show. Well, and he's just such a lovely guy. You know, he's just so, he's so, uh, I mean, there's something, you know, you're the same. Eric is the same. There's a handful of folks that found a wonderful professional outlet for what is a very simply just a love of this art form. And I can tell you as a composer working in the art form to know that there are a few people that really listen carefully and then try to signal boost things that mean something to them. If, like if, 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 if you or Eric or Rob features my work on one of your shows, that always really means a lot to me because I think here's someone that listens to a thousand scores a year and chose to put a little bit of a spotlight on this one. They don't do that for every score and they're listening to a lot. So, you know, I I always I'm not a believer in the notion of there being sort of gatekeepers or tastemakers. But there is still nonetheless the fact of the matter that if you listen to something a lot, you're going to know it better than the average passerby. And so if someone like that says your work score pretty good, I always take that as like a, a deeply affecting 
compliment. It always means a lot. So I'm all too happy to have chats like this as, uh, you know, as part of that. away from your schools what sort of music helps you to relax but how do you how do you relax well so it's funny i've never associated music with relaxation to me music is exciting to me music is like i'll listen to something and it makes me want to run you know so i, I don't i really really rarely will put a piece of music on and then just crack open a bottle of wine and just sit back and or fall asleep listening to music. God, I couldn't. So to me, I've never had that relationship with music. In fact, I used to get a lot of comments from people when Journey came out that would say, they still do, people saying, I fall asleep to this every night. And I, it took me years to not be insulted by that before I realized that for them, that was the greatest gift music can give. Is I, It just transports me to the point that I, I, I leave my body. But that's never been how music felt to me. I never, I don't know why. I, just to me, music is inherently exciting unless of course it's music that i very quickly realize i don't think this is very interesting and i get very bored of it very fast and then i'm eager to to let it go so yeah i listen to a lot of music but to me it's not to relax it's because 
I'm excited to listen to it. And in, in, in that sense, I try to always have my thumb on the pulse of, of everything. I listen to a lot of jazz. Of course, I still listen to a lot of soundtrack albums. In this case, I listen to a lot of soundtracks and scores because I've reached a place in my career where a lot of these are being written by friends and colleagues of mine, and I like to know what they're up to. I'm very excited when a friend puts out an album and I haven't heard it and I don't know anything about it. I, I'm excited to listen and then be able to give them a call and say, hey, why'd you do this? You know, what, 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 what? Perfect example is I, I was messaging with Taylor and Andy uh, of the so-called Newton Brothers because I was watching uh, Haunting of Bly Manor and I was listening to score and there's just a few absolutely achingly beautiful pieces in there. And I, and I wrote to them and I said, okay, you've got this melody for piano that is so memorable. Every time it comes in, I, you can clock it. It doesn't just feel like, oh, here's some piano music. It's like, there's that theme. And I said, what did that theme mean to you? So I'm like this nerd who just wants to talk to some composers and see what they have to say or listen to a band or go see a sh And I go to a lot of concerts back before COVID love going to concerts. Certainly the majority of them that I go to are orchestral and chamber concerts. One of the last concerts I went to before all the lockdowns was to go see the Mongolian metal band, The Who, uh, which was a very loud, very fun experience. But I would say if the spirit of your question is, what do I do to unplug or what do I do to kind of take my mind off of music? I listen to a lot of podcasts these days, like everybody, it seems. And I particularly, I listen to a lot of political and philosophical podcasts. I really love science. I listen to a tremendous amount of science content, you know, like podcasters that will, you know, say, okay, you know, here's the latest paper from such and such neuroscientists, and let's try to break it down and explain what it, what their findings mean and that sort of thing. And I love listening to debates. I love w listening to people hash out ideas, you know, like particularly about religion. That's one of those that I've, I kind of became addicted to for a while is you know, like a Catholic priest versus an atheist about, you know, the specific claim will be, is there evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? State your case. And I love listening to the ways that they both would approach the arguments and, and what constitutes uh, reliable evidence versus not. And, and I, I learn a lot about logic and the nature of syllogistic argumentation and how we can really break down. You know, when somebody says a comment, you, you realize, well, you may not know, you've just said five things. So let's try to take them one at a time instead of giving a messy answer. You know, that's, I, I, you, it teaches you how to think. So I love studying like philosophy and history and epistemology and those kinds of things. And I spend a lot of time uh, just reading and learning about the world. I also play a lot of video games and watch a lot of movies and watch a lot of TV shows and, you know, just try to consume. It's always a race against time because there's just so much that exists. You know, I will eventually die having not read every classic novel or watched every classic film or played every classic game. Just not possible. And, and, and that kid really crushes me because I think, man, people work so hard on these experiences. And then every now and again, something magical comes out of it. And I hate the thought of missing when those stars align like that. But it, it's just there's just so much. <laughs> Back to your musical pursuits. What are you working on at the moment that you can tell us about? Well, as you might suspect, the, much, the vast majority of it is secret. But funny enough, a project that has been announced, and it is known that I'm working on it, but I haven't said much about it yet because I'm preparing proper behind-the-scenes content and stuff still, is, uh, is actually a new Aliens game, kind of in the mold of James Cameron's movie. So I got to, I got to really go a little wild uh, on that with that IP not in, recently. I, I've been worked on the score for about a year and a half. It only was just recently announced, and but we recorded the score 
uh, the orchestral component of the score, and there's a lot that's non-orchestral. It's very weird. In fact, it's it's actually ironically, it's probably its closest cousin is probably Goldenthal's Alien Three score, if anything, because it's a very wild and weird take on Alien. But it's full of homage to Goldsmith, and it's also full of like uh, Horner's Aliens was definitely something the creative director always really wanted to make sure we never strayed too too far from because. That's how they wanted the game to feel as well. They wanted the game to feel like that movie. You know, it's a, it's kind of an action film and it's a very much an action game. So that is not released yet. This is actually the first time I've spoken about it in any way, but I am allowed to. I was just sort of saving the juicy details until I could make some YouTube videos and stuff uh, to share. Uh, but that one was really exciting. That was one where I had a friend at Fox, actually, who reached out to me and said, hey, look, I know you're an Alien fan and we're working on this Alien game and would you be interested in having an introduction to the team? And I was like, are you kidding me? And the team were, they didn't see it coming because they were like the journey guy. We got along great, though. And I said, look, you got to understand, I'm a diehard fan of, you know, Goldsmith and Horner and these films and of Cameron and, and Ridley Scott. And I've watched these films a bunch and I love this franchise and I, lo I love this franchise even when it's bad, you know, like Alien Resurrection and I was like, I still go see those movies because I think that it's a very interesting IP. It's an interesting story and it's an interesting kind of universe. And so, yeah, I was just absolutely overjoyed. Really looking forward to that one. And finally, Austin, how do you see your career developing in the future? What an interesting and difficult question. I, I don't know. My goal is always to hopefully, I'll, first off, I'll just be grateful for a career. You know, every project, I always feel like maybe this is going to be the last time anyone calls. It happens to people sometimes or a lot of time, most of the time, probably. I, I knew I know that I do like to make my own things, you know, like I made a, for example, a couple of years ago, I made a big two hour symphonic theater piece about science and music called A Light in the Void that I just thought no one's ever going to commission me to write this thing I wanted to write. So I'm just going to write it myself and did a big whole evening length show with the Colorado Symphony with lighting design and lasers and fog machines and scientists giving speeches while I set them to music as if it was a dramatic monologue and all kinds of things like that. So I, I may someday decide I want to try to make a film or something like that because I, I really do love creating. Part of why I love doing these things is I love the interaction with the directors and the creative producers and all that. And, and, and sometimes I really get myself involved in those things. You know, I really get myself involved in those conversations where like, there's a video game I'm working on right now that I can't talk about, but I'm in the writer meetings, you know, where we talk about like the lore and the world building and, you know, okay, well, what if, what if this symbol means that? And, and they just, they let me be part of that because I know I enjoy it and, and I hopefully can be helpful to them. So I think, um, as long as I'm still creating things, I'll, I'll be happy. Not just creating things, but hopefully feeling like I'm creating things that I really have never created before. That's fundamentally the goal. Past that, I'm just grateful to be able to put food on the table. Well, Austin Wintry, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, sir, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I do hope you have enjoyed both parts of our interview with Austin Wintry on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And if you want to know the tracks of music played on this part of the show, please go to the music playlist on the Cinematic Sound Radio website at cinematicsound.net. I'll leave you with more music from Austin's multi-award winning game score, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, with a track entitled I Would Have Created a Paradise. My thanks again to Austin Wintry for joining us. And until we meet again, 
from me, Jason Drury, is take care, stay safe, and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>